Hello and welcome to CLA Rural Business Uncovered. In this bonus episode, we're joined by Mark Tufnell, our new president as of November 2021, who will share with us his priorities for the next two years, his insights from COP26, details about conservation projects on his estate and much more. Today we have a very special episode in store for our listeners because we're joined by the newly elected president of the CLA, Mark Tufnell. Mark is the 55th president in the association's 114-year history and we're delighted to have you on the podcast. Now, you've only been in the role for about a week or so. How does it feel to be president? Well, it's exciting, but at the same time, it's a little bit uh, nerve-wracking. Um, and as you say, I was elected last Thursday. Um, I've been lucky enough to go to a meeting in the Historic Houses AGM yesterday, where there were a lot of our members present um, who rushed up and very kindly said, gosh, well done, it's great to have you on board, looking forward to what you're going to do. Um, and I've had lots of very nice messages from people who've seen the video clip that we sent out on text message, which is also accessed from weekly news. And to that extent, it's rather nerve-wracking in that their expectations have been uh, set quite high. And and somehow I feel as though I need to uh, deliver. Um, And that's something I very much hope I can do. Um, But it's hope uh, in advance. Well, we're all very confident that you'll meet those and uh, no doubt exceed those expectations from, from members. And I'm sure it's quite an exciting time for you and, and the family. Now, before we dive in to talk more about your role as president and what you hope to achieve, tell us a bit about your background because you farm in Gloucestershire. Um, tell us a bit about the estate. Well, my family were lucky enough to come to um, Carmsden, which is just north of Sarantester in Gloucestershire, just before the First World War. Uh, my great-grandfather bought it. He moved up from Hampshire, where he'd been farming, and he wanted to set up home, build a, a nice home for his daughter and his son. His son was tragically killed in 1917 um, in the First World War, and so it came to my grandmother, um, and she and my great-grandfather ran the farm Uh, together. And then after my great-grandfather died in the sort of late 40s, she was very much in control um, because my grandfather uh, was an MP. He spent a lot of his time um, in Westminster and also representing his constituents who were from the University of Cambridge um, at that stage because that's when the universities had an MP. So it's my grandmother who was very much in charge. And I remember her as a very small boy. Um, she was quite a um, firm and quite a stalwart character. <laughs> she died in 69 when my father took over. Uh, and he was able to bring in some advice that Derek Barber um, gave him. He was working for ADAS at the time, since became Lord Barber. Um, And his advice at that stage was to do one thing and to do it well. So the 
beef cattle, the dairy cattle, the pigs, the chickens, and quite a lot of the sheep all went. And we focused for a very long time, from the 70s through to the um, mid-90s, on continuous wheat and continuous barley, which was the fashion at the time. And as we went into the community, European community, um, actually farms on the Cotswolds all did the same thing. And generally speaking, farmers did pretty well. Um, and it wasn't until the 90s when I started getting interested in, in farming. And then in 95, my father died, that crop rotations and obviously rape came in and people realized that actually we needed to grow our first wheat uh, to improve profitability on the farm. Um, and I'd been farming part-time there all, all, all since. And I I managed to um, combine it with a career as, uh, as an accountant, um, probably something that's helpful to mm-hmm. us running a farm. <laughs> um, although it's taken us quite a while to actually turn a profit. But, but the estate is far more diverse now to what it was when your family first bought it, because alongside the farming, you've got some residential lets, you've got some offices, workshops and a wedding venue. Yes, I I think, though, that there would have been a lot of people working on the farm um, when my great grandfather came along um, because you know, a huge number of people worked on farms uh, and we would have had horses, which would have taken up um, a lot of time, staff time. Um, when my father was around, you have to remember this was before the 1985 Housing Act, and so there was concerns that if you let a house out, you may end up with a tenant being able to buy the property under the Resale Reform Act. And so there was a great tendency for landowners not to let out farm cottages. Farm cottages were seen as a real liability. Then, of course, the 85 Act came along and the opportunity to have a short, short-held tenancies. Um, and also the, the Cotswolds became a sort of lovely, picturesque place for people to want to live, to live and work, as well as uh, visiting. So I managed to improve all the housing stock, which was the first thing that we did. And then... After having done that, which took, I have to say, a considerable amount of time, um, we then looked to doing the farm buildings, the redundant farm buildings, because agriculture had changed, and turned those into, as you say, uh, workshops, some office space. We've got a, um, a man who's born in Los Angeles, who is a music uh, producer. Uh, in, he's there in a traditional grade two listed building. Um, and the one that I suppose, um, for me, that's been the most exciting that we managed to do over lockdown is convert another grade two listed barn. It was a granary. It would have been used to great effect um, before the corn laws, uh, when wheat prices were really high um, and farmers would have done particularly well before the agricultural depression kicked in. Anyway, that, that building has been long disused, we managed over lockdown to turn it into a wedding venue. It was quite nerve-wracking because um, I had an operator lined up 
and wedding businesses were very, very badly hit during COVID. Um, and there was great concern as to what the future of the market was going to be. But um, we pressed on. We took a, a view that everything was going to be okay. Um, the building trade was allowed to continue in lockdown. We didn't have the shortages of supply that you're now seeing. And the builder said he'd finish at the end of August. We finished on time. We had the first uh, wedding on the 4th of September. We've had 15 weddings uh, since then. <laughs> We've had a pop-up uh, restaurant. And there are over 100 weddings booked for next year. So it's a great testament to the operator and for the work that they've done in forward marketing uh, the wedding venue. Yeah, and I'm sure it's been a, a wonderful process seeing that whole thing come to life. And, and obviously, I'm sure a reassurance for you that you're having a strong number of interest and, and bookings flooding in. Now, Picking up on your role as, as CLA president, to become president, you've got to be involved, heavily involved in the organisation, and you have been so um, for, for many years and served on committees. What inspired you to get involved in the first place? I think I was um, interested to get involved back um, in the mid-90s um, when I was um, working down in Gloucestershire uh, as an accountant, and my father was there. Uh, and I didn't know a huge amount about rural business. I'd done a very short one-year business management course at Sarasister. But I was interested in getting involved in, in the uh, local agricultural community, the local um, business community. Uh, and I was approached by Geoffrey Hopton, who was the regional director for the three counties, uh, Gloucestershire, Worcestershire and Herefordshire, before we had regionalisation. Uh, and he said, would, uh, would I join the Gloucestershire branch committee, uh, which I, I did. And actually, I found it a, a very good way of not only meeting people, but also getting involved in trying to change local and government policy to try to help uh, landowners and farmers and also to get our views across whilst policy was being made. And, you know, I'm, I'm pleased I did. And I was encouraged to go and join some national committees, agricultural land use and tax. And of course, with the tax specialism that I had, that I um, did with Smith and Williamson, because I'm a chartered tax advisor as well as a chartered accountant, um, it meant that I was then able to join the policy committee as well and then you start to see policy coming forward um, and, it, and, and see how it feeds down to people on the ground and how it can be used by farmers and landowners. And, and that, to me, was an exciting process to be, become involved with. And you've been a strong supporter of the CLA's Rural Powerhouse campaign, which seeks to get government to really focus on the economic potential of the countryside. What is the future for that campaign now? And do you think the government really gets the countryside? I think the government is beginning to understand the countryside. It's a, it's a difficult area because I know from talking to a previous past president, uh, Ewan Cameron, Lord Cameron, um, who was asked by David Cameron to be the rural champion when he joined the House of Lords. Um, and he found it very difficult because 
government departments work in silence. I was very encouraged at the Labour Party conference that they announced that when they're in power, whenever they are in power, they say that they will have a rural minister in each government department. If one could do that, that would be tremendous. But it's very difficult to get different government departments to talk to each other and to get commonality of um, of policy. So the government has set up the new Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, which has taken over from uh, the Ministry for Housing, Local Government and Communities. And um, with Michael Gove in charge, the fact that he was previously Secretary of State um, at DEFRA, I think gives us huge opportunity to work closely with him to make sure that rural communities are heard and that they do realise that if you can boost productivity within the rural economy, you can increase gross value added significantly. And the benefits of that, not only does it help the underlying businesses increase their profitability, because we need a profitable countryside to help our members and the economy move forward, but it also brings in increased tax take. And we all know there's huge pressure on the government to increase the level of tax in order to make all the meet the spending requirements that government have currently made, particularly in the last budget. Part of the rural powerhouse campaign involves encouraging government to bring in what we've called a rural business unit. So we end up with a simplified tax system. And ironically enough, it's something that we started campaigning on 29 years ago. And that's 29 years ago when I first worked at Smith & Williamson for somebody called um, Sir Michael Bunbury, who published the Bunbury Report, arguing just that, just that we should bring in a rural business unit. And it's something that we shall continue to press for. And I think it's beginning to get traction. I know 29 years sounds a long time, but if we can push this through, particularly alongside the fact that we're all going to be asked to do making tax digital in our businesses in two years' time, it's something I think that the CLA will be thankful and it comes at a critical point in the future of farming. And I know many of your members will be uh, keen to, to explore and understand what the transition means to them and their businesses, the agricultural transition um, that that is. And clearly in England, there is that transition from BPS to ELM happening at a much, much faster pace than what we've seen in Wales with the transition to the sustainable farming scheme. What's your view around transition? And do, do you expect there'll be quite a bit of divergence in policy between England and Wales? In England, there's a fairly close, closely worded timeline from BPS to environmental land management in that the government has firmly set out that basic payments will cease by 2028. And they've said that the environmental land management programme will come in in full from 2024 and that they've said that the budget in total will be the same by the end of this parliament 
which theoretically was going to be 2025. Now, Henry Dimbleby, in his report, has argued very strongly, and we would agree with him, that the funding should be kept through till 2028 for definite and should be increased in real terms. And we would expect that the funding for the Environmental Land Management Programme would continue and increase thereafter. But as you rightly say, we have a difficult time in this transition, how we get from BPS to ELM and how within England we manage that. The government is is helping through the various productivity schemes that they are bringing in. And they have recently announced, announced, in fact, this week, yet another scheme, Farming Investment Fund, to help um, farmers, landowners, land managers, foresters, contractors buy specialist pieces of machinery um, at a 40% grant. And they're also helping the creation of water reservoirs and irrigation kit. Um, to the tune of £10 million. So there's a lot of grant money going towards that, and that, along with the £17 million for the small equipment, is significant. There have been previous um, grant funding rounds that will help. Now, there's a lot of advice that's available that the government, again, are giving at the moment, and they're running pilots, and the pilots are running for the Sustainable Farming Incentive There'll be a pilot for local nature recovery, and there'll also be a pilot for the landscape recovery element. Now, in Wales, with, as you mentioned, the sustainable farming scheme, we're looking forward to the Agriculture Wales Bill, which the government, uh, the Welsh government and the Senate are looking towards. At the moment, they're holding back on the reduction of their basic payment scheme because they don't wish to have this transition until they know precisely where they're going. And that's something that's pretty similar in Scotland. They're continuing there with their basic payment scheme until they know what type of scheme they want to progress. I think the government in Wales and the government in Scotland take a slightly different view about farming to the views of our ministers in Westminster. And some would argue that they are potentially more supportive of their farmers because the sustainable farming incentive is going to have a strong farming element and it's going to focus towards helping farming members. Whereas in England, the Environmental Land Management Programme is going to focus on paying public money for public goods. And whoever provides the public goods is the person who's going to be paid for them. It might be the landowner. It might be the tenant. It might be the only occupier who farms. It might be the Wildlife Trust. There are a wide range of people who will be able to apply for it. And there'll be a difference between the number of people who can apply for basic payments and the number of people who can apply for environmental land management. I'm not sure that that will be the same in Wales. I think the people who apply for basic payment in Wales may well be very similar to the people who apply for sustainable farming in Wales. So that's where I think the differences will apply. That is 
That is the consequence of devolution. The Country Land and Business Association have been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. We lobby government continually on behalf of our members to give them the security and certainty to invest in their land and business. Our in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and rural business management to ensure the positive development of the rural economy. Clearly, we're moving away from European policies and uh, we can argue the merits of the common agricultural policy, but I guess it, to some extent it did provide a degree of stability for farming businesses throughout the UK. D- do you fear there's going to be a possibility of, of never-ending change and a lot more for farmers and landowners to try and understand as we migrate and transition to the new scheme world? I think that there will be considerable uncertainty between now and at least 2024 or 2025. Um, And for my period of the presidency, which will take me through to November 2023, that period of certainty, I think uncertainty, will probably be pretty high. So with the transition from basic payment to ELM in England, the difficulty, I think, is that there'll be a significant number of farmers who won't wake up to the fact that there is a change in the scheme until they see a reduction in the cheque that they receive sometime between December and June. There will be a reduction in this forthcoming period. So on the 1st of December, when people wake up and expect to receive their cheque, it'll be a bit less than they got last year. But A lot of people will probably think, oh, well, it'll all just carry on. And then the following year, the check will be a bit less again. And the same thing will happen the following year after that. And it won't be until 2024 when the amount of money they get will be half what they got in 2021 that a lot of people will then finally wake up and think, hang on a minute something is changing. I need to do something. I need to, I I do need to look at this ELM. I might disagree with the E part of it. I might think that my farm is there to produce food. And I've had many members come up to me to say, you know, DEFRA, within DEFRA, there is a word called food. Um, There is something called food security. We've had a recent food crisis. We had a problem with um, pork. Um, We had a problem with carbon dioxide. We we saw the issues that were involved uh, when when the supply chain was disrupted for a short period of time. And our farmers are really important. And it's a message that we keep putting to government. It's a message that um, Henry Dimbleby put out in his national food strategy. You know, farmers grow food. And the difficulty, of course, in the English scheme is that the Environmental Land Management Programme, with its emphasis on environment, 
and it's linked back to the Environment Bill, the Environment Act, which has just come in, uh, means that food production is not at the key part, not at the heart of it. I would argue that if you put money towards soil, grassland management, soil management, then and you aim for better air, better water quality, and you pump money into that, and you pump in similar sums of money to the money that went in before, then actually you will help and support the farmers who are there growing food, and you will help food production. But it's not something that I think you'll hear a minister say, because they'll say, oh, well, food is a private good. It's not a public good, and we're not going to support it directly. And you've usefully illustrated the impact of um, a reducing um, level of direct support that finds its way to farming businesses. Now, uh, and, and you hinted towards a need for farmers and landowners to prepare for that change well in advance of that change having a, a quite damaging impact on their business. What measures or what steps could they take now to try and put their business in a much stronger position come come the uncertain years in, 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 in the future? I think looking at Wales first, because I think it's probably an easier situation, because it's going to take a little bit of time for the Wales Agriculture Bill to become an act and for the Sustainable Farming Scheme to come in. I think farmers there should look very much at their own system that they have, make sure that they can reduce any costs they have within their business, look at ways of improving productivity, make use of any grant schemes that the Senate will put forward, and take advice where appropriate. There's a very good government advisory service to help farmers. So I think... I appreciate that there are difficulties with the new um, nitrate vulnerable zone that's been put in in Wales, and I fully appreciate the difficulties that the dairy sector is going to have. But I think that with the advice and support that they can get from the CLA, from the government advisory services, and from the grants, I think they, in the short term, will be in a, a better place to whether any storms coming forward. And we mustn't forget that this season, um, commodity prices and prices for beef and sheep are at almost record highs. So unless you're in the pig sector where the price has fallen, almost all other prices are actually very high. And I know, you know people have done Farmers have done jolly well. I, and I'm sitting, you know, I, I farm myself in the Cotswolds and I'm looking at wheat prices of over £200 a tonne, which is, you know, unheard of. Um, in England, where I think it is a little bit more uncertain, I think farmers should take advantage of the productivity schemes that are being put forward, the Farming Investment Fund in particular. I know the timescales are tight. They really are tight. And the current one, you have to put your application in by the 7th of January. But I'd urge you to look at it, urge you to look at buying any pieces of equipment that you feel would help in your business. 
There's plenty of advice there on how best to look at the various government schemes that are there. Um, and for those of you who are in uh, either an ELS or an HLS scheme, that's higher level scheme, I would consider moving to a countryside stewardship mid-tier scheme, which is what we're doing. So I know what my income will be from the 1st of January next year for the next five years, which will cover me through to 2024 when the Environmental Land Management Programme will come in. And I will then be in a much better place to decide whether to leave the stewardship program early to go into environmental land management or just to wait towards the end of the scheme and then move into ELM itself in full. So I'm managing on my own farm to actually almost double the payments um, of my HLS scheme by going into mid-tier. And that's a very secure bedrock of income that I know I'm going to get. So I think I would urge people to look at the opportunities available. I, I know not having the information is unnerving, and I fully understand that it's unsettling, but look at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to improve your own business by scaling, scaling down on certain costs, maybe sharing machinery with your neighbor, uh, look at better marketing of your crop, taking advantage of these tremendously high prices. Um, and I think if you do that, you'll be in a much better place um, than thinking, oh dear, I don't know what's going to happen because of this change um, in support mechanisms. And it's really interesting that you touch upon the the high prices, particularly for livestock, because uh, on the back of COP26, I know you had a meeting um, in Edinburgh with the American Agriculture Secretary. What was the tone of that discussion? Do you think he understood the fears amongst British farmers about the consequences of a US free trade deal? Well, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Secretary Vilsack uh, in Edinburgh. And I met him alongside three other um, UK organisations, the um, NFU, NFU Scotland and SLE. And there were two other um, American farmers who joined us. And we were able to present our views on the challenges facing the sector and the challenges that we've discussed and the uncertainties. Uh, and also the potential for products coming in to this country, which don't meet the high farming standards that we're asked to meet in this country. And I don't think any of us were arguing that our standards should fall in this country. We're very proud of the standards that we have. We're very proud of our product. And we were looking to better promote our product, our very special UK product, to sell overseas and for us to take on export opportunities into countries such as Australia, New Zealand, and of course, America. Um, and it's encouraging that the government have come forward with um, a greater number of trade envoys. Currently, there are only two agricultural attaches, 
Um, but the numbers are going to increase towards 20, which is um, to be supported. We're asking for better labeling of products so that we know if the product comes in, if it's Australian or Brit or American beef, and then I'd argue we'll let the customer decide whether they want to buy British or buy local, buy Cotswold lamb, or even better, buy beef produced by the grazier from Carmston, and they know the provenance of that. And if they know that, and they can compare it with a label from somebody producing beef in America, then they can make the decision. They may well make it on price, um, which so often happens in the supermarket. But, you know, we, we live in a, in a free country. We live in a, in, in a um, supermarket culture where price but also quality play an important chance. Now, talking to Secretary Vilsack, I was, I was, I was rather intrigued because he said that they didn't really want to import very much because they were quite happy with their own production. What he felt they should be doing was exporting, exporting more product. Now, obviously, um, we would take certain exception to that, because if we're going to end up with free trade in whatever arrangements our government comes forward with America, we want the opportunity to sell our product to America just as much as they may wish to sell their product to the UK. When you look at the trade figures, one key area uh, is in land production because they don't, in America, produce enough land to support their consumption. And they don't have the type of stock needed and the quality of stock to produce the high quality land that we can produce, particularly from Wales. And so I think that's a key market for us to focus on. There is a difference, too, in the type of beef. I know much has been said about feedlots in America, but you have to remember they produce an awful lot of ranch-style beef that may not be suited to uh, this country. And you have to then look also at the type of cut that is produced. So we mustn't go down the standard route of just selling a carcass. What we need to do is look at better selling our produce. So if somebody says we've got a, we can sell X thousand tons to uh, America, we want to sell X thousand tons of high quality, for example, sirloin steak. We don't want to sell X thousand tons of shins. So we want to go for the right product at the right time. And I think that Yes, I think Secretary Vilsack was there on a charm offensive to try and persuade uh, the UK farming organisations that they weren't a threat. Um, but we, we have to be wary. We have to set out our stall. And we were, we were pretty firm um, that we wish to trade with them just as much as they may wish to trade with us. Now, f fascinating to hear some of your observations and reflections following your meeting uh, with the American Secretary. Now, I want to take you back to, to the estate. Uh, I know you take conservation very seriously and you've been running a project with grey partridges. Tell us about that 
project and, and your love for the grey partridge? Well, back in 1995, when my father died, um, we had, um, if you remember, we had Set Aside. And Set Aside came in in 1992 when I was in uh, at Sirencester. And we had to work out ways of setting aside 15% of our, our ground and take it out of production. And my father and I thought, well, there's, there's definitely a difference between good set-aside and bad set-aside. And when I say good set-aside, I mean set-aside that could benefit um, biodiversity, benefit farm and birds. And he and I were chatting about how in the Cotswolds, certainly in the 70s, there used to be masses of grey pastures, and they were all wild. And he was saying it was something that he was sad to have seen disappear. And it had disappeared, I think, through not for anything that he had done that you know he, he felt guilty about. I think it was changing farming practice. And the drive in those days was a drive for more food. And with it came better technology. And he was always keen on technology. Um, and the opportunity was there to have better herbicides, better insecticides. And of course, we had stubble burning, and it was something that had been used to good effect um, to control grass weed problems. And if you're in a continuous wheat and barley um, situation, the last thing you want is black grass and weeds. So it pr produced a great entry, um, a great sterile entry to help. But the one thing it did do, unfortunately, was it took away all the insects and it took away all the habitats for the ground nesting birds in particular. And he reflected on the fact that, you know, we'd, we'd done really well in producing high quality wheat and barley and the farm had been profitable and productive. But he was saddened by the fact that actually the number of farming birds had gone down. And this became apparent when we looked at all the um, British Trust for Ornithology figures. Um, and if you look at the data, the numbers have declined. And so he and I thought, well, why don't we use the set-aside to better effect? And we started putting in grass and strips and started trying to have bits of, of uh, cover that would help. Um, and I went to see the Allerton project uh, up at Loddington, run by what was then called the Game Conservancy. It's now the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. And they just started working out ways of putting strips of conservation measures in each particular field, and then changing the way they did their farming. So they didn't have enormous great blocks of Aussie's rape and enormous great blocks of wheat and enormous great blocks of barley. They split it all up. And they were starting to see a lot of success. And um, it was something that I talked about with him. Um, and then, of course, very sadly and suddenly in age 72, he died. Um, and I, I just felt it was, it was something important to go forward with. And it was a project I started really not expecting that it would work. Um, and 
I used originally the Cotswold Hills Environmentally Sensitive Area Scheme, and then the Entry Level Scheme, and then latterly the Higher Level Scheme that we have to change some of the habitats that we do. We now have 14% of the farm in specialist habitats. That's 250 acres across the whole of the farm. And we put out feed in the Hungry Gap. That's from April to, um, sorry, from January through to April to cover that time when there's no food out there for partridges. We look at um, all the habitat needs that they have from nesting through to producing their young. And the key thing is to actually produce insects. And the net result is we started counting in 2005 under the GWCT partridge count scheme, and we only had a pair, which was uh, pretty disappointing. Um, we got it up to about 20 in 2012, and then the weather struck and was very much against us. The numbers fell to about seven. And then my my father's gamekeeper, age 79, um, said that it was about time that he retired. And I took a new gamekeeper on who'd won uh, the Grey Partridge Trophy down at Powdrum in Devon. And with him, uh, Will Pratt, we looked at starting a, a fully-fledged um, partridge restoration scheme. And we built the numbers from seven up to a spring count of 72. Now, it may not sound very many, but as most people uh, don't have any grey partridges uh, on their farm, um, with uh, notable exceptions of uh, Norfolk um, and those other partridge fanatics like me, um, the, the, because it's a bird that has great propensity to have an enormous number of young. So you, you can get 18 um, chicks just from, from one hen. There's a, great, there's a great opportunity for the numbers to expand exponentially. So I'm hoping that one day we might get to 100 pairs um, and then we should be able to get um, with our land that we have um, a, a self-sustainable, self-sustaining population. And the benefit of it, people say, well, why on earth do you do this? What's so important about it? Firstly, it's a red list species. Um, it's, it's native now to this country. It's, a, it's wild. It's very difficult to get a, a, to rear a partridge, to release it. They don't understand the wild conditions. And uh, more importantly, all the measures that we do benefit other nesting birds and other farming birds. So uh, we've seen an increase in lapwing. We've seen many more yellow hammers. We've seen corn buntings, linnets, uh, and we've got masses of skylarks. So when we do a survey every year of all the other birds that we have, all the other plants we have, and the butterflies and the bumblebees, and we can show that on our farm, through the conservation work we've done, instead of seeing a decline, 
which you may well see if you look nationally, particularly if you look at the figures from BTO, you'll see an increase in the numbers at Carmston. And uh, it's very exciting to be able to buck a national trend. Well, many congratulations on what you've achieved on the estate. And uh, I know you and your gamekeeper have won a number of awards for, for the good work you, you've been doing in that regard. So, so very well done and keep up the good work. Now, before we draw this podcast to a close, there's one final question I'd like to ask. And what's going to be now your focus or what would you like to achieve uh, during your term in office as president of the CLA? You've got a lot on your agenda, no doubt. But what's going to be those main priorities of yours? And what would you like to, to say, looking back at your term in office, um, this is what you help to achieve with uh, with the organisation? I think I, I think of the three Ps. I think um, people, that's looking after the members and also the staff within the organisation. It's focusing on the policy that we've got. And I've got three key areas of policy, which is food and sustainable farming, climate change and adaptation and mitigation, and then the rural powerhouse campaign that we've talked about. And the final P is is the press. It's how we better communicate to the outside world the benefits of farming, the benefits of land ownership, and how we better promote ourselves to the outside world. Well, that's a great way to end the podcast. You've got some clarity of vision there as president of the CLA. I know you mentioned at the beginning that it is an exciting role and a nerve-wracking one at the same time, but I can assure members of the CLA that the organisation is in very safe and capable hands in Mark Tufnell. Mark, thank you ever so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed, and I'll do my best. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode.